Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 190 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Nice to be back. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah. Had uh, a month of uh, busy meetings and, you know, helping clients out and stuff. So took a little bit of break to focus on that, but it's good to uh, be back in the saddle again. It is nice. Yeah. It is nice. I know listeners would love to have us have us together. I know, uh, Mark, uh, I know that uh, Aaron and, and, and Nick do a great job when we can't be on the podcast. Yeah, it's nice to be back with you. Yeah, it yeah. feels normal. Feels normal. So before we begin, as always, I want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 28th. And this data is from Ycharts. Uh, S&P 500 down 2.3% for the month of February, uh, but still up 3.7% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 3.5% for the month and down 0.8% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 1% for the month, up 9.6% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 1.7% for the month, up 7.9% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 3.7% for the month and up 4.7% for the year. Three month Treasury rate at 4.9%, two year Treasury rate at 4.78%, and the 10 year Treasury rate at 3.92%. Moving on to big headlines, current events uh, from the past week, Um, just a couple key dates over the next couple weeks, Matt. on March 10th, so next Friday is the next Fed jobs report. Uh, March 14th is the next CPI report for February. And then on the 22nd of March, uh, the Fed interest rate decision. So it's going to be interesting to see because for the longest time, they were like, okay, we got you know one more rate hike in us, maybe, maybe two. But the economy still remains strong. Jobs remain strong. Unemployment remains low. So it's going to be interesting to see if they think they're going to need to keep raising. Yeah, I think there's anxiety right now in the market that inflation is going to be sticky and that the economy is a lot stronger than people had anticipated, given all these interest rate hikes up until this point. That's pretty much the bottom line, Mm -hmm. right? And I think you're seeing uh, some stickiness with inflation over in Europe, but I would argue that they're lagging us by about five to six months on that inflation battle per se and their interest rate hikes. But um, you know, we got some data continuing to, to come out. You gave those key dates, and the market's definitely going to be on pins and needles waiting on those releases. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. First thing I had was a tweet from uh, Mark Unjwitter on February 17th. Uh, and Jenna will throw this graphic up for everybody uh, on the YouTube page. And I love show it notes. already. Um, so magazine covers coming back. Uh, So he tweeted, uh, magazine covers are often contrarian signals. Why? Because markets are often thoroughly discounted by the time narratives reach saturation. Yes. 
Yes. The point of maximum value for enterprising editors. So it's a front page of The Economist. Uh, I think this is the February issue. Uh, and it says why inflation will be hard to bring down. And it's a hot air balloon with a nail in it, <laughs> which is, which right, is pretty right. interesting. So let's go back to October when the market was really, really weak and we were at the year lows. The front of the cover and the narrative in the market was the Fed's going to be out of control with these interest rate hikes, and they're going to completely ruin this economy. It's going to be a deep recession, and 2023 is going to be horrible. Right. That was in October. We're Which in is February, the low as of right now. And now it's, oh, the economy's too strong. Right. We've got to cool this sucker down. Yeah. So it's just interesting when you see stuff in the media and you see things in the paper and you know on magazine covers, it's typically pretty well priced into the market at that point. I love point. when you bring these things up because they are usually great. Just spot on. So, spot on. The Barron's covers, oh, those are great too. Yeah, and it was timed perfectly, right? So, you know, the market obviously struggled a little bit in February after a strong January, and then boom, this comes out. So people are like, oh man, this is the start of another, another massive leg down, right? Where mm -hmm. in reality, if you really look at the data, which I'm going to get into here in a couple minutes, February typically the second half of February is pretty weak for the market, just mm -hmm. year in and year out. Um, just a seasonal kind of... Yeah, kind of just a seasonal weakness. So jumping kind of right into that, it was an article from uh, J.C. Peretz, and he looks at, you know, the seasonality of, of February. And, you know, I kind of, I like the title of this blog post was, How's Your Hangover? Because most people can can relate to this, right? So he starts out by saying, it's been a choppy month so far, hasn't it? Uh, look at this sloppy hot mess, and it's just a, a chart of the S&P 500 just pretty much going nowhere for the month of February, just kind of oscillating yeah. back and forth. And he says, when I was younger and would get hungover from drinking too much, the cure would be a combination of bacon, eggs, cheese sandwich, a workout, and maybe a cocktail. But really, the best cure was just time. Eventually, it would go away, and I would feel normal again the next day. In the market, it's the same thing. It just needs time. The November through January period is historically the most bullish three months of the year. And then comes the February hangover. We're in the middle of that right now. Look at the average performance of every February going back to 1950. And Jenna will throw this up on the YouTube page for those watching. Just shows the average performance of February going back all the way from 1950 through 2022. And as you can clearly see in this graph, Matt, you know, right around the middle of the month, you start to see weakness at the end of February. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and he says, and remember, this is the most bullish quarter of the four year presidential cycle of the 16 quarters in the entire cycle. The one we're in is historically the most bullish pre-election years are also the best year of the four year cycle, which we talked about before. Yep. So I still believe that a messy February doesn't mean the end to the bull market that turned eight months old today. I still think it's just a well-deserved digestion of gains before the next leg higher in equities. We'll let the market dictate whether we change our approach or not, but so far, just perfectly normal markets doing their thing. Yeah, I mean, I kind of would frame it this way. You know, I've, I've told listeners, I don't know, countless times, watch earnings, watch earnings. And, you know, why was the market doing so well in January? We had a horrible December, and guess what? The market got smacked in the face with reality in January that there was no deterioration in corporate earnings. Shocker! Mm -hmm. And so let's look at the calendar. We're at the beginning of March. We're going to get that data again at the end of April, beginning of middle of April. You know, it's six, seven weeks around the corner. The market's not stupid. They're going to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And the market can react to this concern about 
you know, interest rates and inflation. But I think people just forget. I mean, go back to the late 90s. Interest rates were higher than they were today. And we went through an amazing bull market in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. I just, again, it's about earnings. And that's what you should be following right now. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so could this be the start of another leg lower? Absolutely. Could, There's yeah, always absolutely. a chance of that. But yeah. I think just putting it in context that, you know, obviously as we make our way throughout the year and we get further and further away from January and February, people forget that, okay, February, typically stocks take a breather. Great um, to point out. So, and again, not abnormal. In the average year, there are multiple, multiple 5% pullbacks in the market. You know, were you looking at my, my, my show notes before you did yours? Uh, I briefly just breezed through them. <laughs> I have a great piece that's going to complement yours perfectly here in a minute. Okay. It's going to be perfect. Well, I will say like no. Pairing a great wine with a great meal. <laughs> I will say no more on that. All then. right. Uh, last thing I had was a quote from investing legend Larry Height. He said, if a market doesn't respond to important news in the way that it should, it is telling you something very important. Ooh, I like that one. Um, so again, this goes back to you know companies announcing earnings reports and forward guidance, the Fed announcing interest rate decisions. And if a lot of the time, and I would argue more often than not, someone reads what a company reported for earnings and they expect the stock to do X, but it does Y. Or the Fed comes out and says inflation was this. Yep. And everyone's like, oh, man, markets are going to sell off. And then the market's up 3% the next day. Yep. So um, it's just interesting that, you know, he's one of the most highly uh, recognized and um, respectable trend followers out there, Larry mm -hmm. Height. Um, and, you know, again, we talk about this all the time, too. We know based on the data that we have, how markets should act in certain scenarios going back through history. Yep. And if they don't act that way, it's very telling. It's telling, right? It's telling. So, um, yeah, just really enjoyed that from from Larry. So. So um, first thing I got is we talked about price to earnings multiples uh, in the past on the podcast, right? We just take 30 seconds and just refresh our viewers and listeners what is a pe multiple what does that mean yeah so it stands for uh, price to earnings ratio so it's just simply a company's stop stock price divided by its earnings per share um and you know typically when you're dealing with you know like um fractional multiples there's kind of two ways that you can look at it so if a, a company has a high pe ratio either the price of the stock is is really high or the price of the stock is is low and the earnings aren't enough to justify the stock price right so if there's a high pe ratio or a high multiple people look at that and say well that's an overvalued company because the stock price is not justified by the amount of earnings the company is is generating sure um and that's i think the most common uh, metric that people use when they look at the market and say, hey, is it overvalued or undervalued relative to history? Um, but we know that, you know, stocks can have high PE ratios and still do really well. I mean, look at the past five years. Absolutely. People so were arguing that for for the past five years that valuations were too high and look at the returns the past five years. And you, you explained it perfectly and I'll just add to it. And I think another um, lens that people look at is if it has a high multiple, maybe its growth rate is above the market. 
So people are paying up for that company because of the expectations of what it's going to do in the future, mm -hmm. right? So um, because there's just so much chit-chat about price-to-earning multiples, I saw this tweet by uh, Seth Golden on February 26. He's a hedge fund consultant. And what he did is he went back several decades and he wanted to find, is there a correlation mark between PE multiples and the forward returns one year later of the S&P 500 index? Spoiler alert, zero yeah. correlation. Yeah. The exact number to be exact is negative 0 0.18. Wow. Okay. So um, Jenna will have this on our show notes. She'll put it up right now for our YouTube viewers. But at the end of the day, if you're thinking about making an investment decision that is forward looking on some sort of PE multiple, that's backward looking usually. That's backward looking usually. Just understand that that doesn't have a high degree of accuracy predicting future returns of the market. Yeah. Well said. Fair. All right. Next, I have a tweet by Mike Zaccardi on February 22nd. He's a CFA who writes for many financial institutions. And one thing he had, and he posted it on Twitter, and I found it interesting is he has this chart mark of the S&P 500 index, and it shows three-month average stock correlations within the index itself. Mm -hmm. And he has this data. Jenna will put up this chart for our YouTube viewers. This will be in our show notes. This goes back to 1990. And the other thing he did is in the gray areas, those were technical recessions that we had. Now, what you're gonna notice is that um, right after COVID hit and uh, the market sold off, everything sold off. So correlations were virtually everything One. did it, <laughs> yeah. right? And then as everything came back after that, that V-shaped recovery initially, everything came back. So you're gonna see that spike where everything was moving in the same direction. The reason I'm highlighting this is that we are starting to see correlations move down. And in my opinion, as we go forward the next couple of years, again, and I want to stress this, my opinion, this is going to be more and more of a stock picker's market. And I'm going to give an example of that. You can pick an arbitrary sector of the market, and I'm going to pick just consumer staple stocks, okay? So in the consumer staple stocks area, I'm going to think of things that me and my family use. So I'm going to take two competitors, Kimberly Clark and Procter and Gamble. No opinion for or against either of those names, but I think we're going to embark on a period of time where maybe one of those names starts performing differently than the other. I think uh, the Pepsi and Coke. Is Pepsi and Coke is a good example. Uh, credit card companies, maybe it's Vista, Mastercard, American McDonald's Express, or Wendy's, Bank of America, or J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah. You know, I think that, and again, no opinions for or against any of those names. We're using them as an examples because I think we're going to embark on a period of time where the market is going to start rewarding companies that are uh, doing things that shareholders like. What are those things? Raising earnings, returning cash to shareholders, raising dividends, buying back stock. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to be, I just think that when you see these correlations go down, um, there are times where just owning the index, you know, the tide comes in, it raises all boats. I get that. Mm -hmm. I just, in my opinion, my opinion, and I want to keep stressing that, 
next couple of years, the tide could roll out and there could be some, you might not see the indices do as much, but some of the underlying names could have stark differences in performance. Yeah, exactly. And I think you see that just on a sector level too. I mean, if you weren't invested somewhat in tech over the past 10 years, you probably underperformed, right? Correct, sir. Um, and going forward over the next 10 years, is it going to be tech? Maybe. Probably not, because we see sector rotation all the time. Yep. When we go through these bear and bull markets, is you know the the, the new leaders typically aren't the leaders that have led the past couple of years. Correct. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that I, I definitely think you're going to continue to see a stark contrast between winners and losers. And what I put in our our market update uh, newsletter for clients yesterday was the performance of all the S and P 500 sectors. Oh, I saw you did so that. Far, that was really nice. Today. Today. And there's a huge dispersion between the top performing sectors and, and the bottom performing huge sectors. Difference. And you have and that's just the first two months of the year. Yeah, you have consumer discretionary or cyclical, whatever you want to call it, at the top. Communication services, technology, all well into the green, low double digits, and then you have utilities, healthcare, and energy kind of lagging the pack, right? So that's a stark difference from what we've seen the past year. Great point. And you go back to what you talked about where the S&P's at year to date, right? Stark differences. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this is where the comments you were making about seasonality in February, it's like you and I think alike <laughs> sometimes, right? And this is one of those. So the third item I have is price action of the S&P 500 index mark coming out of bear markets going back to 1950. This chart is from Matt, and can you help me with his last name because I do not want to mispronounce this. Sermonero? I'm gonna go with that. Sermonero? He's got great stuff, by the way. Yeah, okay? he's good. He's a research uh, analyst at Fundstrat, okay? So he posted this on February 21st. And he's, again, he usually has some good stuff. What he did is he's overlaying the price action roughly one year after a bear market low going back to 1950. The technical definition of a bear market is from a high water mark, the market sells off at least 20%, mm -hmm. right? So if we look at this, he shows going back to 1950 in all the gray points, what the market did in each of those kind of recoveries, let's call it. And then in the blue, he has the average since 1950. And in red is where we stand since the low on October 12th of 2022. And you know what? We're not too far off of the average. Mm -hmm. We had not a good December. We've had, eh, you know, kind of a, a, a one step back in February, not horrible. Mm -hmm. But when you take into account these recoveries, if it were easy, smooth, and up every day, you would not get the returns that you're getting on a longer-term basis. Correct. This is a great chart. Puts things into perspective. Yeah, it does. And um, you know, one of the things that's catching my eye, it looks like right around like the 100 to 130 day mark there's usually some sort of pullback on on average it looks like yep. um so you know looking out you know a month or two from now we could get another pullback um historically speaking march and april tend to be pretty good for the market so it wouldn't surprise me if spring may or june we get a, a pullback in the summer right so again it's not gonna go straight up 
from the bottom left to the upper right. If it did, that would be concerning. We're going to have multiple 5% pullbacks. Yes. Um, it's even normal to, to pull back double digits in any given year. So yes. that should be expected from yes. investors. And right. if people can't handle that, then there's no, I don't want to sound too harsh, but there's really no business being invested in the market, right? Well said. So um, that's the piece I had to finish up. Uh, before we have Taylor come on for the financial planning topic of the week, we have a listener question, Mark. It's been a while. Keep them coming, listeners. Yeah. So this question is, um, you want to you read the question and I'll address it first? Yeah. So I um, had a question from a, uh, a listener and a friend of mine, Sean. Um, uh, he asked a question earlier this week. What do you think about Rivian automotive stock and other EV stocks in general? So here's my response. I think the best way I can answer this is from the angle of investing in companies that are not currently profitable. So rather than siloing Rivian initially, let's just talk about the environment that we're in for unprofitable companies. So for many, many years, we were in a low interest rate environment the cost of borrowing money was cheap, okay? Going to the equity markets to raise money, either debt or selling stock, was a lot easier. We are in an environment where the cost of capital is the highest it's been in 12 or 13 years, okay? So when you look at that, you have to look at it and say, can these unprofitable companies, I don't care if it's Rivian or ABC company or XYZ. yeah. Neo. Yep. And even outside the EV space, right? Could be in healthcare, could be anywhere. You have to look at it and say, how quick are they going to turn to profitability? What's the competitive landscape? Are they, what's their burn rate of cash? Are they going to be able to raise money if they need to? You know, you got to keep going down this list. How are they going to retain talent at the company if people think it's going to go under? You got to start like going through these lists and there's a lot of considerations for unprofitable companies. On the flip side, you might look at it and say, okay, well, I think this company, when you do your own analysis, um, this company might be able to turn profitable in X amount of years. They got enough cash. They might, they might be able to make it. But what tends to happen is through these economic tough times, a lot more companies that are unprofitable tend to go bankrupt because they run out of runway. They don't turn profitable quick enough and they can't go to the equity markets to get money. They can't go to the bond market to get money. And so I just throw that out there that instead of looking at this through the lens of Rivian or an EV stock, I think investors just, the best way I can answer this, um, we gotta look at it from the lens of unprofitable companies. Yeah, and I think you make a good point because you know, Rivian going to a bank versus Apple going to a bank, Rivian will not get the same lending terms that Apple can get. That's because right. Because of how powerful and how strong of a company Apple is. They so, look at reoccurring revenue. They look at your balance sheet. And uh, I have not analyzed the stock. I'm not going to give a formal opinion on the stock on the podcast. But rather, I want to give these thought-provoking questions because you could apply it to any sort of unprofitable company. Because what tends to happen is, is that they're longer term prospects for whatever unprofitable company, not Rivian specifically, might be very good. But the question is, is, is the company going to be in existence long enough to reach whatever economies of scale or develop whatever product or service that's really going to 
make them profitable at some point. Mm -hmm. You could only lose money for so long before shareholders are going to demand a return on their capital. Right. I mean, I'll give you an example. Look at Carvana. Yeah, that's been They've been brutal. unprofitable for years and years, and the market is getting very impatient. No opinion for or against the name. I'm giving you another example. But it's just like, ultimately, at the end of the day, unprofitable companies need to have their own analysis done. I mean, even from the get-go, if you're investing in an unprofitable company, that is not um, conservative investment in general. Would you agree or disagree? I would agree. And I think, you know, if that's fine if people want to do that, but just tighten up your stops a little bit and don't let a 10% loss turn into a 90% loss. Yeah, and that, and kind of know what you're getting yourself into, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a company that makes a profit, not a company most likely with a solid balance sheet. You know, what I see a lot of times with these types of companies is they raise money at opportune times where there's optimism in the market. So you talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. What's the hot area that everyone's talking about right now? AI, right? Mm -hmm. So who knows? There might be an AI company that goes public over the next year. It's got a lot of enthusiasm. They raise X billion of dollars, but they don't make any money. So how long can they burn through that money and eventually try to get profitable? Yeah. And so that's just the way I like to answer it uh, for this listener question. Keep them coming. But I think you got to start looking through the lens of what's their burn rate, all those different considerations I threw out there. And just know it's a different risk profile than the average equity. Yeah. And I think, you know, from the technical aspect of it, um, I would just kind of just let the market tell you. I think people are get so enamored with trying to buy at the absolute low that that's where people kind of get into trouble. Whereas if you wait until, for example, a stock's above its 200-day moving average, the industry is in an uptrend. What are other companies within the industry doing and your likelihood of success is much higher if that one stock you're looking at is surrounded by peers that are also performing well well put so that's just another risk management technique is you know rivian's kind of been just kind of chopping sideways for a few months now it's like i'm willing to give up the first 30 or even 40 percent of the uptrend to just wait and see how it performs and then possibly get in and take a position once it's in a defined uptrend. That's just a risk management technique. I love it. And especially for a company that's fresh relative to companies that trade publicly, I personally like to see IPOs trade for at least a year and kind of just try to understand how it trades and how it re reacts to certain information before just saying, hey, this company IPO'd yesterday, it's going to make me a millionaire. I'm just going to jump right in just because I've seen people do that and get crushed, right? You yeah. buy it at the top and then all of a sudden within a month, yep. you're down 80% and then your psychology changes and you're like, okay, well, once it just gets back to the price I bought it at, I'm going to sell it just so it's break even. But then the other thing that creeps in is it's opportunity cost. It could take three or four years to get your money for back. that stock to go back to where you bought it from, where the market might be up 8% per year going into that. That's right. I mean, these companies aren't IPOing at times where the narrative around them is bad, right? They're IPOing mm -hmm. when the narrative around them is really good. There's optimism. People are paying up for it. And the last comment I want to make is for our newer listeners, Mark. I love that you added this additional um, context because, you know, you are our firm's chief investment officer. 
you know, you are the one that have uh, the day-to-day -day buy and sell decisions. You're mm -hmm. looking at these entry points. So kind of hearing it from the horse's mouth on that additional um, light that you provided on the topic, I appreciate that. Yeah, and it's just one of those things where, you know, and we get this question for clients all the time. It's like, hey, we haven't held on to this name that we bought a couple months ago for that long and we already cut it. And it's like, it doesn't mean that we dislike the company. It's just, again, I don't want to let a 10% loss turn into a 50% loss, right? Yeah. And it's like, uh, we're always going to be watching this name. And if we've added it to the portfolio, you know, I would expect that at some point we're going to add it back, but I want to wait until that name is acting right just for risk management purposes, right? Well said. So well said. Um, yeah, good question. I mean, it's definitely an industry that I don't think is going away anytime soon. Rather, you're for or against, you know, the clean energy versus, you know, old school energy movement. Really don't care about that. I just I don't think this is going away anytime soon based on the amount of money some of these companies are investing in this movement. Well per said. Se. So well said. Well, I will get out of here and let Taylor come on. And uh, we I, I don't know if I'm going to be on next week. I have a work trip uh, next week, but if not next week, I'll see everybody the week after. I know I'll be on, I'm pretty sure. Okay. All right. So next up, we got uh, Taylor Ledbetter. Uh, she's a wealth advisor at our firm and handles uh, all of our kind of financial planning work behind the scenes for our clients. Taylor, welcome. So what do you have prepared for the financial planning topic of the week? Yeah, so today I'm going to be talking about the different annuity or pension payout options. Ooh, this is going to be a good one. Yeah, so I'm only going to include the most common ones I see. I, I think um, that's good. Okay. Yeah, and the, the names can be, I feel like, kind of confusing if mm -hmm. you're not familiar with the topic. Yeah. So I felt like this was good to go over. Love it. Okay, let's see what you got. So um, first, I just want to kind of briefly talk about how those benefits are calculated. And I think this would pertain more to like if you're a teacher and you have a pension that way. Good example. So um, normally what happens is your three highest average years of compensation are taken. And that's multiplied by some kind of percentage factor. I would say an average is about 2%. Okay. So you multiply that number um, by the amount of years you were employed at the company, and that will give you your annual pension amount. Got it. Now, when it comes to the different options, I think that there are four that are pretty common. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is called the single life annuity. And this provides the largest monthly benefit out of all of the options. Um, because payments last for your lifetime and end upon your death. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a good choice if you don't have like any survivors, like you don't have a spouse, um, any dependents who rely on your income, um, or maybe you expect to live a really long time. Maybe you just have great genetics and yep. you're, you just want to make sure you have a high monthly benefit. Yes. And so the other thing I'll throw out there is you hear it uh, deemed the SLA. Mm -hmm. So obviously you, mm -hmm. you, you coined it properly, the single uh, life annuity, but in a lot of these forms, they'll just say SLA. Mm -hmm. So just kind of know listeners and viewers, that is exactly what Taylor just addressed, single life annuity. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Um, the second most common option is called the joint and survivor annuity. So this also pays a benefit for your life. Mm -hmm. And when you pass away, that benefit will continue to be paid out to 
the beneficiary that you named. Um, it could be a, a spouse. Normally, that's what it is, a spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you have young kids, it could be any just financial dependents. <clears throat> so if your survivor or your beneficiary that you name predeceases you, um, payments do just stop when you pass. <clears throat> so um, this is also a great option if you're worried about providing for a spouse upon your passing. You know, maybe yep. they don't have any investment accounts or they just don't have enough social security. Um, people will normally pick this option. I heard some crazy stat a couple years ago, and I'm un- I cannot provide the source, so I'm going to give a range. I heard something crazy that like over 70% of all pension election options are the joint with the survivor. And I kind of coin it the, the honey, I love you rule, mm-hmm. right? If you're in a relationship, you have a significant other, you know, if you don't elect that, holy smokes. And a lot of times, the, uh, if you're married, they have to sign off mm-hmm. on these elections, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine going to your significant other and saying, hey, I'm <laughs> taking the SLA and um, there's nothing for you. I need you to sign this document. That's a, that's a tough ass. Probably doesn't go over very that, well. You're probably not. You're probably <laughs> so, sleeping on the couch for a while. So that's probably why that 70 percent is so high. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Mm. Um, but the the third option uh, to choose from is called the period certain annuity. Yep. And I think this one's a little more less common. I would say. I, yeah, I don't see it as much. Yeah, um, but similar concept to those other two options, it pays a benefit for your lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, And if you pass within a certain period, payments will continue to your estate or a named beneficiary. Um, Until that period ends. Exactly. So if you choose like a 10-year period certain, if you were to pass at year five, then payments would still continue to that beneficiary for five years. Correct. Correct. So let's go back to the joint with survivor. If you don't have any period certain on that, and I'm going to use me and Rachel as an example. So let's say that uh, Rachel has a pension. Okay. She does the joint with uh, the survivor. Mm-hmm. So in essence, if something happens to her, I'm going to get the same amount. Mm-hmm. So she's going to take a lot lower amount than the SLA yeah. to protect me. But after she cashes that first check, she can't change the beneficiary. Mm-hmm. I pass in year one, and now she's getting a lower amount for the rest of her life to protect someone mm-hmm. that's not with us. Exactly. And that's why sometimes you see this period certain to where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to get it certain for five years or 10 years or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it kind of messes with those calculations, mm-hmm. right? Yep, exactly. You yeah. worded it perfectly. Yeah. Um, the last, you know, most common option I see is the lump sum payment. Yes. Um, so that's basically when instead of taking that monthly benefit, you can just take a lump sum of the account basically. Um, And most of the time people will just take that lump sum and reinvest it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also seen, seen partial lump sum options too, Correct. where they might say, Oh, like you can take a hundred thousand dollars, but maybe your monthly benefit is like a thousand dollars. So your monthly benefits reduced and you get 
half of that lump sum. Yeah, it's like a good example, I think, is like uh, the state of Ohio, STRS, the state teacher's retirement system, I think they allow them to take up to 40% mm-hmm. in a partial lump sum as an example. Mm-hmm. And the remaining 60 is in an annuity that they're going to get spread over their life based upon these other payment options and additional ones that you're not covering. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the lump sum payment, it can be a good choice if maybe you don't need that monthly benefit Mm because some people don't. Yeah. um, Or you're wanting to leave cash to the next generation or a charity. Well said. Um, It really kind of comes down to the numbers because I know we've run break-even calculations before. Yep. um, And that's going to be different for everybody. Yep. But it's it's still a good option. Um, so just kind of to, to sum all of that up, I just wrote out some pros and some cons for the monthly options for, versus the lump sum payments. So to kind of recap, you know, I think the main pros for a monthly pension payout is that it does help you stick to a budget in retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, some pension plans do adjust their monthly payouts for inflation. Okay, that's good to know. Um, it definitely provides security in retirement. Um, And really, I think the only con uh, for the monthly pension payouts is that upon passing payment stop, depending what option you choose. I got one more that a lot of people don't talk about. The other one is pensions are not necessarily guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And I very much ration the word guarantee in anything I do in my professional career, right? Mm -hmm. And so do you, Taylor. You get this, right? And the one thing I want to throw out there is what happens, and I'm going to use uh, an airline as an example, okay? So um, I'm going to use an airline that goes under and they have a pension. When a company goes under, and let's say it's ABC Airline, whatever their funding status is, 70 cents on the dollar, they turn it over to a government entity called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, the PBGC. And whatever's left in the pension fund, they could go back to their pensioners who are on that fixed budget and say, hey, this company's no longer to continue to pay in and service this pension for you guys and gals. So your benefit in six months or a year is going to drop by 30% because mm-hmm. that's how much cash they have in order to meet this. So just be aware that, you know, that is that pension amount is typically backed by if it's a publicly if it's a public or private company, it's backed by their ability to service that. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, if it's a government entity, it's backed by the ability for, you know, if they run out of money, can they go and legislatively raise that somehow? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, again, I ration the use of that because I just don't want people going into it and thinking, okay, this is absolutely guaranteed because that may or may not be the case. Right. And, you know, that's I know that's why we sometimes recommend the lump sum option to over the monthly pension payout. I mean, like I said, different depending on where you're working and your situation. Absolutely. But 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 yeah, I agree with everything that you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. but, you know, just a couple of pros about the lump sum option is it is very flexible. Um, you have the opportunity for investment returns, but then on the flip side, there's also investment risk. That's right. You're taking that on yourself. You make poor investment decisions. You're too aggressive. You put it in speculative areas or you're in the market in general. You're not used to market fluctuations. Mm-hmm. That might not be a good solution for you. Yeah. And I would say if, you know, this 
pension payout lump sum amount is kind of all you have in retirement, it might just be best to do the monthly option opposed yeah, to lump sum. What you don't want to do is get in a situation where someone takes a lump sum, they draw that down way too quick, and then they don't have anything left. Exactly. Right? Or like that, and then you have a year like last year, say both of those combined. You, know? you got it. Yeah, this is definitely, I love how you highlighted these kind of main different areas, the SLA, the joint survivor and annuity, the period certain and the lump sum. As you said, there's others. Mm -hmm. And again, from the my compliance mind side of this, this is definitely a topic that I would highly recommend that you, you seek out, you know, a professional planner where he or she could kind of run these numbers. Mm -hmm. What's the break even? What's your health status? How long do people live in your family historically? Um, you know, what's your other finances? There's so many considerations mm -hmm. that go into account, Taylor, that when you are assisting somebody in analyzing those decisions, my gosh, it's not just a cookie cutter, here's a one page kind of checklist and if I check these boxes, this is what I should do. Right. Doesn't work that no, way. No, because even if like, even if one of those factors changes, it could change a recommendation we give, you know? That's right. And the thing I want to throw out there for some of our listeners and viewers is, uh, just because you seek out a professional doesn't mean that he or she needs to manage that money for you. Mm -hmm. So what is very common in the industry, and a lot of people just don't know this, is that you can reach out uh, to uh, a professional planner, a wealth advisor, a financial planner, et cetera, and he or she can help you kind of determine which of these elections is good for you. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be a client of theirs mm -hmm. on the asset management side. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. So I just think that a lot of times people think, well, if I don't have money with XYZ company, um, and I'm not saying this to be self-serving for our firm either, you know, if they're, just because you don't have money with a firm doesn't mean you can't seek out professional guidance on these types of topics. Mm -hmm. They might charge you a flat fee, an hourly fee, um, you know, it might be a cost associated with their analysis and advice, but in such a big decision that mm -hmm. might be worth it to you to get, okay, yeah, Taylor, you're thinking right here mm -hmm. or Hey, maybe Taylor, you didn't think about these things. Yeah. You know, something yeah. to think about. Yeah. Well said. I yeah. agree. Anything else you want to bring up? Um, no, I think that was everything for today. Sounds great. So, um, we just got done recording here. Episode number 190. I just checked my schedule. And I'm recording the podcast uh, next Thursday uh, with the one and only uh, Nicholas Whitaker, Director of Research and Trading here at the firm. Uh, him and I always have a good time together. So that's next Thursday is when we're going to record episode 191. So uh, thank you, listeners and viewers, for uh, listening to this episode. Uh, me, Taylor, Mark, hope everyone has a good rest of your week. And we'll see you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.